Hi, everybody. I'm Zach Koselia. Thanks for joining the Better Way podcast. I am the co-host of this podcast. I'm also the co-founder and the leader of RNG Insights Lab, which is the legal industry's first and only analytics and behavioral science consulting practice. I am joined here with my co-host and colleague, Hui Chen. Hui, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. I am Hui Chen, and I'm senior advisor at the Insights Lab here. And I'm very happy to be Zach's partner in crime in this episode and going forward. If you listened to the last episode, you heard Wei Chen, my co-host, interview me. And now I'm going to interview Wei Chen. We want to start by getting to know you a little bit better. Although, in fairness, I feel like everyone already knows you. And one of the reasons why they know you is because you are so well-known due to your time at the Department of Justice as the DOJ's first compliance consultant expert. But I don't want to start there. Before we even get to that role, I want you to tell our listeners a little bit more of how you got there. Tell us about your career leading up to that point, because interestingly, it actually started at DOJ, right? Absolutely. So I've had a quite atypical career. Uh, It started out relatively typically. Um, I always wanted to be a prosecutor. So my goal when I graduated from law school was DOJ. And I was lucky enough to be selected into the Attorney General's um, uh, Honors Program, uh, which was a highly selected program. And I was able to get in and be part of the criminal division. And we did rotations in the criminal division. So I was in uh, organized crime racketeers section. I was in public integrity section. I was in Office of International Affairs, um, which is where I ultimately ended up. We also had to do a trial stint uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. So I got about nine or 10 jury trials under my belt um, from that. And it was a great experience. I wanted to have more trials. So I went to the Eastern District of New York uh, where I was an assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, then I moved uh, in-house from that role to uh, from, from being a prosecutor to become an anti-piracy lawyer for Microsoft in, um, Eastern, in Central and Eastern Europe. So I had this interest in, in law school, third year of law school, spent 20 hours in, a week in the language lab learning Russian. This was 1990 when uh, uh, the Iron Curtain was falling. And uh, so I was fascinated with Russia um, and that led to this career with Microsoft uh, based in Munich doing anti-piracy work in Central and Eastern Europe. Then I came back to the US with them after three years in, in Germany um, and did the same anti-piracy litigation in the U.S. And I was, uh, my home was New York and uh, I was there when 9-11 happened. Um, and as a result of some of my volunteer work from 9-11, I ended up leaving Microsoft to go study theology. Um, I went to Princeton Theological Seminary, got a Master of Divinity, was ordained as a minister in the Presbyterian Church of USA. I just want to make sure everyone heard that. Did everyone hear that? <laughs> say, say it again, Wayne. <laughs> I was an ordained minister, um, and part of my training was doing um, a hospital chaplaincy at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in New Brunswick, which was New- Central New Jersey's level one trauma hospital. So I have, uh, I, I really am getting goosebumps as I'm talking about this experience. I, I still stay in touch with that chaplaincy. Um, and uh, it was an amazing experience where uh, I, I really, no exaggeration, uh, saw life and death multiple times a day. 
And uh, it, it really was the kind of experience that puts everything in perspective. Um, so I was minister. Um, I ended up uh, working in ministry not for very long before I realized that my temperament was much better suited to be a lawyer than a minister. Um, so I uh, called my friends at Microsoft, said I would like to come back. Um, and they said, how would you like to go to China? And I said, to do what? They said, to do this thing called compliance, um, anti-corruption compliance. And I said, oh, well, that's about as far away from being a minister in New Jersey as could be. So um, I took that opportunity. That was my entree into the compliance world. I was with Microsoft uh, in China for two years. And then I returned to New York um, and was with Pfizer um, doing international investigations. Um, uh, that's where I met you, Zach, uh, yes. and we were that. together. You were my you were my my best outside counsel. Um, and uh, uh, after three and a half years or so of constantly traveling um, and constantly sort of having people lie to my face, um, I decided that I was a little tired and I wanted to have a little break. Um, up until this point, after work at Pfizer, I had been taking culinary classes um, at the uh, Institute of Culinary Education in New York. Um, and I realized to get good at it, I just need a lot of practice. So I went to Italy and I worked in four different restaurants in Northern Italy um, as a cook, as a, not a chef. Chef is the person in charge who actually knows what you know uh, he or she is doing. I was a line cook. Um, so uh, I did that for just a few months and, uh, and then I went off, uh, took some time off to go to Brazil, went to the carnival, had a great time. While in Brazil, I got a call uh, asking me if I wanted to go to join a bank, um, Standard Chartered Bank in London to be their global head of anti-bribery and corruption. And they said they would move you to London. And I said, oh, well, they, they moved me to London. Sure, I'll go. Um, so went to London, was the was you know building out um, the bank's anti global anti-bribery and corruption program. Uh, when I learned about the role that Andrew Weissman was then creating at the fraud section uh, in DOJ's criminal division. So somehow I ended back to the building where I started as a young prosecutor and I was there. Um, so that's the journey leading up to uh, to the compliance counsel role. It's incredible. I, I just hope for anyone who's keeping track, I, I think I got eight different careers there uh, <laughs> over, the, over the course. And and what's so interesting is that I think to many of, of our listeners, you're probably best known for your work in compliance and in the ethics space. Um, but you had actually had a career as a prosecutor. You had had a career working in-house focused on piracy um, and a career as an ordained minister before you even found compliance, right? Absolutely. And yeah. and believe it or not, I think things really come together. I used to not even, it's not even that much of a joke. I said, you know, compliance and ministry, uh, a lot of similarities. We pray a lot and we take confessions. <laughs> That's, I, someone write that down. Um, that is that is great. So let's talk about um, let's talk about your role uh, as the um, first compliance consultant expert at DOJ. How did how did that come about? I heard about a uh, you know this role being created through uh, a, a former colleague at DOJ, um, and uh, they said you know they really want someone who's been with different industries, um, and. Uh, 
I fit that bill. So I had been in technology. I had been, I was at the time in financial services. I was with pharma. And um, a lot of people don't realize that fraud section doesn't just prosecute FCPA cases. They the FCPA is one of three litigating units. Um, they have a healthcare fraud unit and they have a what was then called financial securities fraud unit. And now it's market integrity and something else um, unit. They renamed it, but you know, financial crimes uh, primarily. So someone who's got the, the pharma background, the financial services background, um, knowing how these things have worked in different industries uh, was someone that they were very interested in. So, so I, I interviewed and uh, was ultimately selected. And what, tell us about what the role entailed. Um, and why it was so kind of important um, at the time, and and we can talk a little bit about now too. So, so what um, the idea that Andrew Weissman had was that he really thought of compliance as a real field of expertise. Uh, you know, what a revolutionary thought, right? Um, so this is not just somebody who you know, oh, you know, I think you know, there's a problem that went on here, and we could just you know maybe do that. Um, he actually treated this as a field that um, requires expertise, just like a forensics scientist would. Um, so, you know, when they need forensic accounting, they go to forensic accountants. Prosecutors don't say, oh, yeah, yeah, I can try my hand at forensic accounting. Um, they don't do that. They go to forensic accountants to help them to do those things. So he saw this expertise as, as something that would be beneficial to the prosecutors who by DOJ policy are required to consider companies' compliance programs when they are prosecuting corporations. So that's sort of the compliance assessment as part of their, their uh, resolution process. But also from investigations perspective, it's helpful to have someone there who essentially can tell them where the bodies are buried. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, I've worked uh, in addition to sort of uh, the, the compliance assessment piece that everybody knows about. So that meant I set in on all the meetings that they had on compliance program presentation with companies. I set in on everything, you know, all the monitor meetings. Um, I even got involved in, you know, situations where monitors in the company have disputes um, and fraud section has to sort of step in and mediate. Um, so, so I did all those compliance related work, but also investigations work. Um, you know, I worked with prosecutors on, you know, drafting uh, grand jury subpoena um, and uh, also on thinking through who they should be, you know, interviewing uh, as part of their investigation. Uh, I worked with the uh, healthcare fraud team on looking at data analytics uh, in the opioid cases. Um, so, you know, simple, just, you know, nothing, nothing super advanced at that time, but just simple concepts, you know, there were people doing this type of work already, but really was pulling a, a lot of this work out to the forefront. So, you know, if, if you have a pediatrician who is constantly prescribing, um, adult amounts of opioids, you should probably look into that. Um, that's probably not normal. Um, and you know, if you're looking at uh, millions of shipment of opioids to a town of 500 people, there is probably an anomaly there. So that all that type of work was starting to get done, but a lot of it was, you know, putting more focus on uh, understanding what goes on inside companies, including what kind of data, what kind of people, what kind of operations. Now, one of the things that you did while you were at DOJ, maybe the thing that you are maybe most known for, 
is as the architect original drafter of the evaluation of corporate compliance programs document. Tell us about that document. So thank you for calling it document. It is now officially <laughs> called guidance, um, but I, I do remember in the early, early days of developing that, I, I very insistently refused to call it guidance. Um, and I would just like to, I would just like to say for our listeners, every, the thousand times that I have referenced that document to Huey prior to today, I have called it a guidance. I made sure today for our official interview for the Better Way podcast that I was going to call it a document. So. Thank you, thank you. It was. It started out as a document. I, I, you know, I have no power um, uh, in controlling the fact that it's now guidance. Um, and, and I have a, my philosophy on that. But separately, how it started was. When I was at, uh, you know, in this role of joining the prosecutors in their meeting with companies about compliance program presentations, companies and their counsel would bring in, you know, binders and binders of documents that containing all policies and whatever. So my, I used to tell them, uh, the companies and their counsel, that if you can find a single person in the company who's read all these policies, then I'll read them. Um, but otherwise, I refuse to read them. Um, in my whole time there, nobody could ever come up with somebody who's actually read all the policies. And uh, so I, I feel like they were coming in with information that was not helpful to us. Um, in terms of our evaluation. So, you know, on, you know, th this is the old adage now, but it wasn't old adage then when people come in and, you know, show us their training completion rate. And, you know, what does that tell me? Oh, you, you were able to make people sit through a training. Did they learn anything? You know, you can't tell me. Um, that data point does not tell me if people learn anything or change their behavior as a result. So, so I said, what, what if we put out the kind of information that we would like to see that would be helpful to us in evaluating compliance programs. And, and this is in the spirit of transparency so that you know we tell you what we think will be helpful for us in evaluating your program so that you, when you come in, you can at least you know, know what kind of questions to expect from us. So this is not like a surprise quiz where you come in preparing one set of information, we want a whole other set that you never prepare for. That was the genesis of the original intent of all of this. Um, and, and the reason, and that was exactly why I didn't want to call it guidance. You know, we are not guiding you to anywhere. We're just asking questions. We're asking questions that we think would be useful in our assessment of compliance programs. And, uh, if, you know, so, so that was where it came from. I love it. Um, so I want to come back to your career. Um, so, uh, we had prosecutor, we had ordained minister, we had in-house compliance expert, we had in-house legal expert, we had cook in Italy. One thing that was missing from that list, if anyone was paying attention, was law firm lawyer. Correct. Um, I, yep. So here you are now at RNG Insights Lab. Tell us why here? Why now? Because of you, Zach. Um, oh, geez. So honestly, um, so part of it was I, I was having a lot of fun as a solo uh, a solo consultant uh, at, after my DOJ uh, stint, and uh, for clients. And I was very intentional about not practicing as a lawyer um, for for a number of reasons, including that I don't see this as practicing law. I see you know compliance programs as business, business operations. So I was very intentional about that. And I had no problem partnering. You know, I would tell clients I would work, you know, if you want, 
my work to be protected by privilege, you know, then have me, you know, basically work with whoever you have. And those who don't have preferred counsel, you know, I have plenty of sort of my own network of lawyers to bring in. Um, so, but at some point, I really just do miss having a team. I mean, a truly a team of people that I, you know, not this team for that client and this team for that client, but really a team that's a constant for me. Um, I also felt a little bit um, frustrated that I couldn't give everything to the clients that I was advising. So I said in our first episode that part of the origin story for creating the lab was frustration that I felt both in terms of service providers and even more so frustration with the discipline of compliance for the way that we were doing compliance. Um, we're going to get, we're going to now, now we're going to get psychological. Did you, do you have those same frustrations where, or do you have your own frustrations with the discipline? Oh, yes. I mean, <laughs> on a, on a, on a, on a daily basis. Um, and, and, and I think what frustrates me the most and, and, you know, is, this lack of what I would call a scientific mindset. Um, and, and I'm, you know, again, I'll emphasize, I, you know, am not a scientist. I am not even good at science. Sciences, science courses were my downfall drawing from high school onward um, and backward. Um, but what I do appreciate is this mindset that when we set out to fix a problem, we, measure that problem. We understand the size and scope and dimension of the problem. And then we set out hypotheses and we test those hypotheses. We see if our solutions work. That mindset is very much missing in, um, in how we have traditionally applied you know, the um, compliance. We started this actually in, in the first episode by talking about how you know, we called it the Better Way podcast, not because we have all of the better ways. Um, let's just be really clear about that. We don't believe that we have all of the answers. We actually Absolutely. see this. This is a exploration of better ways. This is part of the journey to find better ways. Um, but what are some of the better ways that you have seen in the compliance space? I think in the compliance space, you know, uh, certainly, um, I will say, um, you know, what the lab is doing and the, the, the type of clients that do come to the lab for this type of interdisciplinary, human-centered, data-driven approach, they are typically more open to these ideas of, you know, let's test what we're doing. Um, let's measure the size of the problem, understand the problem, uh, propose solutions, test the solutions, and then refine them. Even for those whose only interest is, you know, do I have a defensible program before DOJ or SEC or whatever? Um, even if that's your only interest, I think you're in a much better position when you can actually tell whoever you're defending your program um, to that we have tested this and this is how we know it works. Mm. So very few compliance officers uh, I would say five years ago, even had this data-driven measurement mindset, measure, test, evidence mindset. I think there are more, but there's still a minority. I think the majority of compliance professionals are still tackling it based on the what I call the old recipe. 
Yeah. So you've you've had such an impact in your career. You've you've inspired me. You've inspired the lab even before you joined. You just have an incredible mind. So now this is not just me flattering you. This is leading somewhere. I think innovation, the the search really for better ways. It requires some amount of intentionality. These better ideas don't just materialize. What's your process for finding better ways or asking the right questions that lead to, you know, sort of innovative, disruptive, game-changing concepts, which, I mean, not flattery, you've kind of done throughout your career. So what's your process? I like to ask why. Why are we doing this? And I think to me, everything kind of flows from the why. And I I remember one of my trips to Brazil, um, you know, I ran into a compliance officer from a very large well-known Brazilian company. And I said, oh, you know, how have you been doing? She said, well, like you said, I've been asking why and annoying everyone with that question. (laughs) So she she blamed me because when, when you really ask why, you get to your purpose what is it that you're trying to accomplish? And, and frankly, a lot of times, if we're just, you know, even if we don't have the most laudable goals, um, at least we can be honest about what we're trying to accomplish and scale our efforts accordingly. I, I think what's so interesting about the, the asking why too is I, I know in my own experience, and I'm curious to see if this has been yours, what, what often happens when, when, when we ask why questions is silence. Yes. Yes, a lot. <laughs> which is a lot. Which is nutty. Um, Never thought but, about it. Yeah. Yeah. Or or we get sort of to to the theme of what you just described. You get a very contributory answer as opposed to maybe the root answer. And so you really want to annoy people, but you really want to do it well. I think you got to ask why maybe three or four times. Absolutely. To get there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So all right, it's time now to get to know you even better. Um, oh, so. Dear. Every episode, as everyone hopefully will begin to, to, to know from listening to us, we have a set questionnaire that we ask all of our guests. Uh, I did it last week. You're doing it this week. This is inspired by the Proust questionnaire, which is, has then inspired Bernard Pivot's questionnaire, which then inspired James Lipton, which is where I know this from inside the actor studio. So are you ready? Are you ready? I don't for know this? if I am, but I will try. <laughs> all right. Let's get to know you. All right. Um, so, uh, the first question, you have a choice here, two questions you can answer. Uh, if you could wake up tomorrow, having gained any one ability or quality, what would it be? Or is there a quality about yourself that you're currently working to improve? And if so, what, which question do you want to answer? I'm going to answer the first one that I wish, um, I was endowed with the ability to become an opera singer. I love it. We, we talked about this by the way, for everyone. (laughs) I don't know if the question was phrased this way that I would necessarily answer it, but if someone asked me if you could have a job other than the one you have, what would you have? And I said I would be an opera singer. So we are so very simpatico. All right. Question number two, you have a choice. Um, Who is your favorite mentor or who do you wish you could be mentored by? My favorite mentor um, is Judge Julie Conger of the Berkeley Albany Municipal Court. Um, So she was a judge where I went to college at Berkeley. And I was very interested in law school and I would go court watch. And uh, she noticed this 
student who keeps coming into court watch and basically took me under her wings. Um, and, uh, you know, I would go then routinely go into chamber and chat with her about, you know, decisions she's made, you know, what just happened in court. Um, and uh, Berkeley Albany Municipal Court, by the way, is just a crazy court. Um, and, and if you're old enough to know that back in the 90s, uh, 80s or 90s, there was a TV program called Night Court. Um, yeah. and, uh, Berkeley Albany Municipal Court is kind of like night court. Um, so crazy things happen there, but, uh, Judge Conger was sort of my guide to a lot of what happens, uh, in the courtroom. Uh, and, uh, she, you know, she wrote my recommendation, one of my recommendations for law school. Uh, she swore me into the bar, um, forever thankful to her. Amazing. They're bringing night court back, by the way. So we have that. Ah, okay. Uh, where's the best place you've ever worked? Um, aside from the lab, uh, <laughs> U.S. Attorney's Office. I just, I love being a prosecutor. What is your favorite thing to do? Cooking, eating. Amazing. Uh, what's your favorite place? Well, I can answer it two ways. Um, so a geographical place would be Italy, and I would probably say Florence. Um, and, uh, a sort of uh, generic place is the kitchen. Amazing. Um, we're going to have to do a podcast episode, a cooking podcast episode. Absolutely. With You're up for it. Amazing. Well, I <laughs> just for everyone who's listening, I pitched way on a client experience where we would train them on compliance through cooking. And I think way felt like that was a little bit too much bringing the passion with the work. You know what? A little digression. So we talked about the old recipe, right? We talked about this mindset about, you know, so this is one of the things that chefs always say to new cooks that you have to taste, 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 taste. A good chef, good cook constantly tastes the food. Um, the traditional approach to compliance, we never taste. We just throw things into the pot and we never taste them. Amazing. So genius, right? This is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Uh, what makes you proud? I think my uh, my spirit in willing to try things, taking the detours that I did in my career, um, I think it came from that realization that life is too short. You just got to do what you got to do. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's you know a lot of people never understood the choices that I made. That I had a perfectly good career in uh, multiple places, Microsoft, Pfizer, and to walk away from those to do crazy things like you know going to going to seminary and then you know going to culinary adventure. Um, why do you do that? Uh, why do you throw away something so steady, so secure, so good um, to take those risks? Um, and uh, I just, I answer that life is too short and I don't want to wait. I've never heard you actually say that before. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, I want to like sit in that, but I'm going to ask you the next question. Um, what trend in your field is most overrated? <laughs> yeah, um, so many, um, but boy, so many to choose from. I'm, I'm having a little bit of a hard time, but I would say, uh, one of the things that uh, people always uh, can be sure that they get an eye-rolling reaction from me is when they start talking about them from the top. Yes. Right, I've seen, we, we are now both eye-rolling. <laughs> yes. Not because tone <laughs> at the top is not important, but because tone at the top is not the end-all be-all 
of how you assess culture or whether or not things are working. And also tone is great, but conduct is better. And this was one of the things that actually was in the in the document, the guidance document, um, was that I remember saying as we we're working and finalizing that, I said, you know, I, I don't like this tone from the top. What is this, a choir exercise? And Andrew Weissman said, how about conduct from the top? So that was what we put in the document that got so little attention. I mean, for all the attention that document got, you know, nobody zeroed in on that. Um, and I also think this um, has multiple dimensions of problems too, because there's also the question of what exactly is the top. Um, when you have a you know very large corporation, um, do you really think the CEO sitting in one country has that impact on someone who you know doesn't even speak that country's language sitting somewhere else and never meet this person? Um, I also think the way it's measured is very problematic. Um, so I, I often say that, you know, we're always measuring tone from the top, or at least the presentations I've seen on tone from the top, it, it counts how many times the CEO has said something pro-ethics and compliance. Well, that, you know, my analogy is that's like counting calories only when you eat vegetables. Yeah. And you, you can't count tone from the top by only choosing to count what you think is important. So you got to count the whole thing. The, you're, the, you're the master of metaphor. Really, really, really good. All right. We're going to talk more about this in future podcasts. But the last question on the questionnaire is, what word would you use to describe your day so far? Improving. <laughs> That's good. It's It started out hectic, but after uh, spending some time with you, I'm feeling much better and uh, hopeful and feel like I'm energized again uh, to have the rest of my day. Same. Same. All right. So look, I think that this has been so much fun. Thank you so much. I am so excited about all of the guests and the wonderful discussions that we're going to have over the course of the coming weeks. I think that the two kind of takeaways of better ways from today are interdisciplinary scientific approaches that focus on evidence and outcomes lead to better ways to do compliance and to measure and improve culture. Um, yes, so I would say ask why and ask. measure and find evidence. And then ask why again and again and again. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you all for tuning in to the Better Way podcast and exploring all the better ways with us. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with the RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com forward slash RG Insights Lab. You can subscribe to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we talked about today, the work the lab does, or have ideas for better ways that we should explore, please do not hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Thank you again for listening.